Hello, everyone, and welcome to Speaking with Joy, a podcast to fill your soul, challenge your mind, and make you brave. I'm your host, Joy Clarkson, and an evangelist for all things good, true, and beautiful. So make yourself a cup of tea, find somewhere comfortable, and let's dive in to this week's episode. It is so difficult to explain things to you, small one. What can I tell you that will mean anything to you? Good helps us. The stars help us. Perhaps what you would call light helps us. Love helps us. Oh, my child, I cannot explain. This is just something you have to know or not know. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Reading with Joy, my summer book club, where we are exploring the surprisingly profound, uh, but perhaps not so surprisingly profound, children's book, A Wrinkle in Time. I cannot believe we are almost to the end of this book, um, but I have been so enjoying reading through it again, um, and especially in this crazy time, it's been kind of a comfort and a solace, and then getting to talk with people about it, and then getting to hear all of your thoughts. And today, I have one of my favorite people in the whole world to talk with me about Wrinkle in Time, my friend, Elena Treva. Hi, Joy. It's so lovely to have you on here. Now, um, Elena, how could we even begin to introduce how we know each other? I feel like we've recorded multiple podcast episodes just trying to explain that very thing. <laughs> and, we, and we always end up talking a lot about mailboxes and TV shows. And uh, But I guess the easiest way to say it would be that we were... We didn't start as college roommates, but we were college roommates. Uh, we were, I think we were functionally college roommates, given how many times I just ended up in your room and <laughs> seemed to live there most of the time. <laughs> exactly. But we met in college at, at the mailboxes. I remember, I think we'd actually technically, we talked about this in other podcast, so we recorded together. Mm-hmm. But I think we technically stood next to each other on an award stage in a high school speech and debate yes, tournament. Yeah, we did. I have a very distinct memory of this. <laughs> I did too. And Elena was winning everything because that's what she did. And, uh, and then we friended each other on Facebook. And then we were like, oh, we're going to the same university. Well, let's mm-hmm. meet. And for some reason, the only place we knew to meet was at the mailboxes. And so that was our epic. I wonder how we knew to meet there. How did we know that one landmark? I don't know. I guess it was kind of a... There weren't like a, I guess now I would know a ton of landmarks, but it was kind of central, it was kind of near the, I think I, I think I got a vanilla latte, I don't know why I remember that, but (laughs) we met. Wait, I definitely remember that, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, because that was like my new thing, I had just gotten into iced lattes, and, and the rest was history, we've been debate partners, and we still end roommates, and, um, yeah, we've been friends for nearly a decade. (gasps) Oh my gosh, I think this is our eight-year anniversary. This <gasps> month, You're it right. would be like next week, because this would be when Biola Orientation would be starting. Oh, that's oh. a happy and terrifying <laughs> thought. <laughs> oh my gosh. And Elena, I, I'm telling them all about our friendship, but why don't you give an introduction to you, because you are an interesting person who does important things in the world besides being my college roommate. <laughs> uh, well, actually, I think that's the most important thing about me. But the other relevant piece of information about me is that I write about religion, about Christianity and women, and I just am coming off finishing my master's at Harvard uh, and am continuing to work on some research in that area. I am in D.C. right now, uh, by which I mean I am mostly in my apartment because I haven't really (laughs) left it for the past five months, and I'm uh, doing great and having a completely normal time about it. So... (laughs) Oh, what a weird time to find ourselves. I just opened the new candle that you sent me, 
which is which one? Um, the lemon and lavender. Ooh, yes, is I love one. Yes. Yeah, I think that was it. Yeah, I feel like candles have been our our sanity, our our tied reality. Oh my gosh, do you know what? I literally realized this morning that I have burned through every single candle I own. They're all gone. The last one died this morning. Oh, well, there's your tie to reality. It's done. <laughs> Just completely gone. But I guess that means I can order more. So I guess so. Well, and there's nothing like opening a new candle and, and smelling yeah. it, breathe into your whole room. My thing, so I'm headed back to the UK, which is why we're recording yes. right now, obviously. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I feel like the thing that I need to, like, both look forward to, but also make it feel like home again, is there's this great candle shop, and I need to go get a couple of obscenely expensive candles. Um, the, is this in Oxford? Is this in St. Andrews? In where St. Is Andrews. St. Andrews. Oh. Um, oh. And they have this great thing where if you use the glass candles and then you bring it back in, they give you, like, 10% for, for, they give you 10% for each candle that you bring in. For each candle? Yeah, so, like, That's if you, amazing. presumably, if you brought in 10 candles, you wouldn't have to pay anything. I mean, there you go. That's incredible. That's yes. truly incredible. It oh is. Oh, my gosh. So that would be my way to survive uh, kind of getting back there and figuring out how the world is in the UK and if things are normal and it'll be interesting. Well, I feel like when you're coming back to your home or after a time away, you have to bring a new candle with you and christen it again. (laughs) Yes. You have to nest with a candle. Well, yes. Um, I feel like I forgot that we were doing a podcast and now I'm just talking to you about candles. I know now. <laughs> um, so I guess we should talk about Madeline Lingle. You had, I guess should. You had never read Madeline Lingle before the summer, right? I had never read Madeline Lingle before the summer, although you've been telling me to read Madeline Lingle, specifically Walking on Water, for uh, eight years, I would say. <laughs> um, and I, you know, it's so funny. I was thinking a lot about why I hadn't read Madeline Lingle before this. And I didn't, I have vague memories of trying to check out or seeing a wrinkle in time in the library when I was younger Mm -hmm. and thinking about checking it out, but sort of having this vague idea that it was perhaps not a book I was supposed to read or it wasn't a book that my more conservative Christian uh, other people that I knew would seem to read or approve of very much. And so it just always seems sort of like, ooh, well, I'll read that book at some point. Um, And then later on, I think over the last several years, I've always felt like I knew I would instantly love this book as soon as I read it. And that almost made me not want to read it because I didn't Mm. want to think about how, if I had read it so much younger, it might've had, you know, what kind of impact or how it might've shaped me as I was growing up, Um, Mm. which was sort of an odd thing to do because if I had simply read it, you know, (laughs) eight years ago, I would have had more of that shaping, but I feel like I've arrived to it at the very perfect time. Mm. Um, And I mean, as I've been uh, indoors and having a very quiet life lately, I've been catching up on lots of books that I've been wanting to read. And this was, I mean, first on the list. So mm. I had the most delightful time reading it. I blew through it and then I read it again and again. And I was so delightfully charmed by it. I'm going to read all of the other ones in the series, but I just wanted to sit with this one for a mm. while. And I loved it so much. And I remember texting you immediately and being like, I'm so sorry. I didn't read it sooner. <laughs> I should have. And it was really cute because you kept on, I was like, okay, pick a chapter that you want to do your, you know, to do the podcast <laughs> oh, yeah. and do it. And you kept on progressively being like, I'm going to do it in this chapter. No, no, wait, I'm going to do it in this chapter. Oh, um, I, ch- I texted you after like every chapter being like, wait, actually, I'm going to do this chapter. Is that okay? Yeah. But then, of course, 
once I met Ant Beast, I yes, knew there was no one else in the world I could talk about. Because There's no one else for you but Ant Beast. There truly isn't. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just realized, I think I've had a, um, uh, I've harassed you into reading several uh, books that oh were considered <laughs> controverted our, in our more conservative youth. Um, because this and Harry Potter and but yes. there's fun oh stories. Gosh. Also, what, stories. And what better way to escape the confines of home than to literally space travel? Truly, I can't imagine a better way. I don't want to read any realistic fiction right now at all. I know, I, I know. I only want to read space travel and time travel. That's what and we need. wonderfully fantastical things. And you said you also, I won't make you talk about this too much because it sounds like it connects back into what we'll talk about in the actual discussion of the book, but you said you'd also read another Lingle this summer? Yes. So I've been reading um, Lingle's Reflections on a Writing Life, which is a wonderful collection of Lingle's thoughts on both her broader approach to writing, her approach to story, her approach to the theology of story, um, but also about the more practical day-to-day mechanisms of her mm-hmm. writing. Uh, and I love reading writers on their mm-hmm. own writing. I love, um, this book is similar in, not tone exactly, but similar in style to Annie Dillard's The Writing mm-hmm. Life, which is another excellent book on what it is to be a writer. Uh, and yeah, no, I've been thoroughly enjoying this particular Langle. I do need to read Walking on Water, though, and that's next on my list. Yes, it's good fun. And I think, I, I was talking with Bose about this last week, but I feel like a lot of people mm-hmm. like Walking on Water because it was one of the first things, especially in that more kind of mm-hmm. evangelical milieu that told people that like being a writer, being an artist was something mm-hmm. that was worthwhile and important and and like spiritual. And so that's what I love about her. And she's just so warm. She's Oh, yeah. She, she's a bit, she's like Mm, I was going to say she's Aunt Beastish, but she's really so Meg that I think... think, Yeah. Yeah. But she does... I I think... I can't remember who you mentioned this to, but I know you mentioned this on an earlier episode that she's maternal in her writing. She Mm -hmm. mothers you through her writing, which I think is beautiful. And also, this is sort of unrelated, but in Reflections on a Writing Life, you may already know this, in which case, I'll repeat it. Um, (laughs) But she does mention Macrina as a particular (gasps) inspiration and source of joy for her, which I I thought... I didn't know that! Yeah! Oh, of course she loves Macrina. Oh, I love that. Well, anyone who is like, why is Joy screaming? Um, uh, go listen to either Church Mothers or I have another episode on it. Sea of Emotions, I think. Anyway, Macrina is, I consider her my patron saint because she was the teacher and um, the philosopher who taught and uh, helped the Cappadocians. So she's pretty awesome. Um Wonderful. Anyways, I thought that was truly delightful. And of course, you would be drawn to Langle and she would be drawn to Macrina. <laughs> yes, we're all spiritually connected, interconnected, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, that's so fun to know. I didn't know that. Well, I guess we should dive into this week's chapter. Yeah. Um, I'm going to try to provide a very brief summary. I always, they, the chapters start to meld together in my mind because you kind of mm-hmm. end and then begin. Um, but this one, so we end the last chapter with her being scooped up into this at the arms and this whole kind of most of the chapter is her just like being tended to by aunt beast um and i love how she comes to name her aunt beast because she's like what should you call me and she thinks through all the different things Mm -hmm. and i love that she thinks you know human this that she goes mother and she goes oh no no mother's mother's too special and then, you know, and then she goes, monster, what a terrible word. And <laughs> she she lands on Aunt Beast. And Aunt Beast, like, very gently tends to her, makes her eat, makes her not eat too quickly. You know, kind of 
Yeah, the sense that she is healing her. She's tending to her, to what's been done to Meg because of the dark thing. And then she's also, um, they're both kind of trying to communicate with each other so that Meg can explain her plight to Aunt Beast, and Aunt Beast is trying to explain kind of their position in this planet. And and then they end up at this, um, this uh, table to talk to Meg's father and Calvin. I love when... Uh, they think that Calvin is like the title for what he is. So she says, <laughs> Meg, shall I take you to your father and your Calvin? And, <laughs> which is so endearing and darling. And I, I, feel, I feel like Calvin is Meg's Calvin in my heart. Oh, and in her heart. Absolutely. And probably yeah. in his heart, too. Probably in everyone's <laughs> heart. Um, and so they have this interlude, and they're trying to figure out what to do. And it seems like he can't get, uh, like, Meg's father can't test her back to... Camazots and they're worried and they're trying to figure this out and they're trying to communicate to what is it they're trying to communicate? I can't, I can't remember what are they trying to communicate that Ant Beast can't get? Um, what it is to look at something? Yes, what it is to look at something and then is it there and then there's, oh gosh wait I should Cal- know this because I just read this because Calvin, um, I love Calvin of course his gift is communication so they keep on oh, talking to what, him um, what, what the three ladies are yes what the three ladies are and they're really struggling, they're wrestling with us and yeah. they take it out and then um, they, they appear out of the sky so yes. that is the quick summary of what happens in this chapter but mm-hmm. this chapter is all about how um, what happens, what we can see, is not all there is. That there's something deeper that we can perceive and what we can't see. So, in light of that, what were some things that stood out to you in this chapter? Well, one thing that's stood out to me um, just now, actually, in what you were saying and reflecting on how Ant Beast helps Meg choose a name for her, is that Ant Beast reflects, or sorry, rejects the word monster as horrid, but she also rejects acquaintance with almost just as much disgust. Mm -hmm. And there's this sense that she's drawing Meg into not the kind of relationship one might have with a mother or father, Mm -hmm. but with a sort of familial grace and Mm. care that's not simply you know an acquaintance that someone might meet which is i mean in a sense what they are they have just met on this planet they do not know each other but ant beast invites her into a deeper relationship instantly and extends so much care to her through the process um and i it's such a beautiful moment i love that moment so much i love that too and you're right and that's very consonant with you know i think i talked with uh matthew moser about how Everything that's evil in this is impersonal and yes. kind of objectified. So, you know, it's the it uh, mm-hmm. and it's the dark thing. It never has a name. It never has any sense of like relationship or, or um, whatever. And this right. is a, this is like one of the light planets, one of the good planets. And it's almost like a quality of the good planet is that no one is a stranger. That you yes. have a sense of relationship and even duty to these, mm-hmm. uh, you know, no one. They don't even yeah. know them. Yeah, and I love that. Yeah, no, I love that so much. I thought that was so gorgeous. Um, and of course, I, I think just the very sensory nature of this chapter, mm. not just in terms of how Meg's pain expresses itself as cold, and we get these very vivid images, both of Meg's cold, her pain, and the way that she's then cared for by Ant Beast, but mm-hmm. also the descriptions of Ant Beast herself. There's this mm-hmm. line where Meg says that, you know, she's drifting off into sort of like the delicate odor of Ant Beast's uh, very soft fur, and she <sighs> thinks, I hope I don't smell horrid to them, and then thinks, I think they would forgive me even if I did and I've never read something more relatable that's sort of sentiment of like I hope I'm not 
deeply offending or disgusting some other person with my presence. Uh, yeah. But knowing that they would indeed love and care for you regardless, which was delightful. I also would like to be scooped up by Ant Beast and taken away and cuddled. So I know. <laughs> I feel like there is no wound that being cuddled by Ant Beast wouldn't mend. I honestly feel exactly the same. I think that's what we all need right now. Yeah. I, um, I, this chapter, it's funny because like coming back to this book, a lot of it was kind of in my memory from my childhood, but I remembered Aunt B so vividly because there was something about the way that she described her and the comfort and the idea of like the delicate odor of her fur. I kind of imagine, it's like, it's soft, but it's like flowers. And you said that you also imagined her as a llama? Yes, I did. <laughs> I thought that was so funny after hearing you and Bode say that you had thought it was a lot uh, of a llama as well, and that was exactly what I thought of. Yeah, it makes me think of. There's a line in a Henry Jameson song where he says, "I think all men just want to be scooped up sequentially and held to the breast of a giantess ten miles out of sea," and I feel like, <laughs> which is a really very bizarrely specific thing to sing. But I it's feel very like, specific, but also I get it. Yeah, I get it. And there's just this sense of deep maternal safety. It reminded me, there's something so beautiful about how not safe Meg feels and then how she's made to feel safe. But it's also that that's a process. Like when she's eating, she can't eat too quickly. And, um, and there's a sense of it taking time for her to be safe in the world. And that's, that this isn't some kind of like psychological thing that resides in her head, you know, a sense of being safe, but that it's something spiritual and physical and visceral. And it reminded me a lot of, um, I read last year, The Body Keeps a Score, and it just stuck with me so much. And it's kind of about this psychologist and his way of dealing with trauma. And he said the goal of someone who's experienced trauma is for them to feel like that was a thing that happened to me, um, but it's in the past and I'm safe now. And I feel like that is what Aunt Beast is doing for Meg, is helping her move from where this terrifying thing that has happened is present to her all the time, to where she, in a deep, visceral, bodily way, feels safe and cared for and loved. Yes, absolutely. I think one of the things that really stood out to me, um, as far as that was concerned, was very early on in the chat. Actually, it might have been in the very end of the last chapter Mm -hmm. of chapter 10 when Aunt Beast scoops up Meg and begins to take her away and Mm -hmm. she tells Meg that she simply needs to relax and Mm -hmm. that she needs to just calm down and Mm -hmm. breathe and that she'll be safe if she can relax and Meg says that's what it said and starts to push back Mm -hmm. and there's some language that Aunt Beast uses that's kind of similar to what we saw with you know what it has said before but the difference is that it comes from this very personal being who is extending genuine care for Meg Mm -hmm. as an individual person not just for this sort of regimented standardized uniform person the way it is um I read (laughs) um uh, Madeline Langle's Newberry Medal speech for mm-hmm. Wrinkle in Time, she describes that sort of regimentation of every person the way that she you know, describes mm-hmm. through it and Kat Kamazots and all this as um, all muffins in the same muffin tin, which I think <laughs> is wonderful. That's amazing. <laughs> um, but uh, Aunt Beast treats Meg as her very own uh, little unique cupcake. And I she, think yeah. <laughs> that's the difference. Yes, she's not a muffin, but a cupcake. No, I think you're right. And I think the you know the it is inviting her to relax and become no one basically to become yeah. an it whereas she even as she's inviting her to relax it's like let's pick the right name for right. me for you and there's a sense of 
her being an individual um, and that being so um, special. Along with that, uh, you were mentioning all the kind of sensual nature of this chapter, you know, is there all this discussion about like the ability to see and, and how that shapes their perception and, um, which I thought was really interesting. And it's funny because Meg perceives this as like really gray kind of dull place. Um, and you know, we were talking before it started about how she perceives it as a cold place. Um, but there's almost this sense that not that Meg is an unreliable narrator, but that her own senses are maybe causing her not to see this planet in a way that is true to what it is. And, yeah. and that's kind of highlighting this almost over-dependence on sight, if that makes sense. Yes. Uh, there was something that you said a couple of episodes ago that I thought was really interesting about the way that Meg is often described throughout the book as blind as a bat. Mm-hmm. And not that bats are blind, per se, but just that they have a completely different way of sensorily perceiving the world when it comes mm-hmm. to sight and sound and, you know, all of the different senses that they use in order to navigate. Um, and that's, uh, there's some talk in this chapter towards the end where Meg realizes that, or she has this moment of thinking that perhaps her senses are just limited and that there mm-hmm. are senses that Ant Beast and the rest have that she can't even begin to fathom, that there are things about this planet that she doesn't even know how to begin to imagine to see because they're so far outside of the realm mm-hmm. of her ability, of her of her sensory experience. Um, but uh, yeah, no, the description of the planet made me think of, we talked a bit about this, uh, the way St. Teresa talks about the soul mm-hmm. as this, uh, St. Teresa talks about the soul as made up of castles, the interior <laughs> castles. Um, and she talks about these seven castles that we, you know, we journey through, through contemplation in order to find God, in order to know God better and more fully. Um, but within the you know very innermost part of the soul is this light this light of god that saint Teresa talks about but to those who are on the very outskirts of the soul that light is so bright that it's perceived as darkness and i thought about that a lot when it came to meg looking at you know the entirety of ant beast's planet i i know it's given a name but i cannot for the life of me remember what it is (laughs) Um, and to her it's very dark but of course to ant beast it's perceived in an entirely different way that there might be some light there that's just too bright for meg to see or to understand in the way that Ant Beast does, um, which I found so beautiful and fascinating. Yeah, and I love that um, that image that Teresa gives of is is fairly common actually in mystics, like in um, yeah. um, oh, what's his name, Pseudodionysius the Areopagite, yeah, um, uh-huh. at, or as my advisor always calls him, my good friend Dennis. Uh, <laughs> talks, oh, Gavin. oh, Gavin. He talks about um, kind of the soul's, a similar thing, the soul's journey into God. And mm-hmm. at that, like, climax is at the top of this mountain. And when you come the closest to God, he describes it as, like, this bright darkness. And, yeah. you know, Bonaventure does that, too. And yeah. something that struck me in this chapter was, you know, they make a big deal of these, of the beasts not having eyes. And so they're trying to explain sight to them and um and they can't but you almost get this feeling that maybe they have an actual sense of some kind like smell like sight like hearing that that mag doesn't have and that none of the other people have that's just as incomprehensible to humans yes Mm -hmm. and because of that they can't 
see or perceive or experience the world in the same way that the beasts are. Yes. But, and I think that's something I love about this too, which is the idea that our ability to perceive things or not perceive them doesn't mean they're there or not, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and like the great intuition of the world being more full of meaning or, or of things to perceive than we even have the capacity to perceive. Mm. And, and like you were saying, I think, uh, throughout all of this, and I think this is kind of building up to the last chapter, actually, there's a mm-hmm. sense of yeah. there being an important thing that our, that Meg's eyes or, you know, the ordinary perceptions would miss, but that's profoundly important and true. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I just think it's so interesting. You know what's really funny is when I was thinking about this book, I don't, I almost do not remember thinking very hard when I read this last time about sight and vision and sense, but it's so central to the story now that I'm reading it again. Oh, definitely. The whole conversation in this chapter where um, Meg is trying to explain to Aunt Beast what it is to look at something, mm-hmm. and Aunt, Best, uh, Aunt Beast says, um, I just called her accidentally Aunt Best, which is what she is, but also <laughs> Aunt Beast, um, says that she doesn't understand why you would want to know why, what something looks like when you mm-hmm. could simply know what it is like. And mm-hmm. there's this indication that there's this sort of knowledge, almost like this sense of knowing that mm. the beasts possess, that, you know, Meg tries to approximate with sight, but even mm. that only comes so close to be able to understand what something truly is rather than just what something appears to be, mm. um, which is such an interesting way of putting that distinction. Yeah, it is. And you're right. And that comes back later when they're trying to describe what the Mrs. W's are, because they yes. can't yes. put their finger on yeah. what they are. It reminds me of another mystic, and maybe my brain is just like, pinging all of the mystics, because now we have that in my brain. (laughs) But Bonaventure talks about how to know something, like, to be able to describe it, you have to be able to, like, put it at a distance from yourself. Yes. Um, Which is kind of what to look is, right? It's to be able to put yourself at a distance and see something and describe it. But when you do that, you're automatically not in relationship with it, if that makes sense. Whereas to know something, you know, he talks about to to know it or to love it is to be... Mm -hmm is he uses the analogy from the song of Psalms to kiss it, to like, to mm. actually be involved yeah. in it. And it's, yeah. it's almost, and I think that ties into Aunt Beast being so um, offended by the word acquaintance because it's like, yes. because she is always in the process of knowing in a deep way where she knows what things are, not just what they look like. She almost can't imagine looking at something, putting it at a distance. Yes, Aunt Beast is all about eliminating distance between people, whether it's through the choice of words that she thinks through with Meg about how to address her, to the fact that we get these constant descriptions of Aunt Beast cradling Meg, of wrapping mm. Meg in a robe, which sounds like the best robe in the world, it and <laughs> feeding her and bathing her, just all of these very intimate details um, that would require just, I mean, on a physical level, um, Meg and Aunt Beast to be very close, mm-hmm. but there's no sense of distance between the two that Aunt Beast is very present and very real um, to Meg uh, and yeah. doesn't allow that sort of separation to come in between them. And what's interesting is she does that while still beholding Meg as someone very distinct from her. Like, yes. it's it's not the closeness that annihilates um, yes. personhood. No, she, never, she never subsumes Meg. She just is near to Meg. Yeah. And I think that, I think this is all a part of Langle's kind of pulsating desire to say, we have to regard people for who they are and not try to put them yes. all in the muffin tins. And yes. 
I wonder how she would feel about the world that we live in now where, you know, because of technology, mm-hmm. there's just this kind of natural homogenization that happens for all of us to participate in the modern life that we live in. We all do have a number. We all are demographics, but I feel like that's the opposite of, of what she was trying to say that Aunt Beast does, is she, we are the opposite of demographic. We are, we are the, the individual cupcake. Right. And <laughs> we can't be reduced to an algorithm yeah. or uh, whatever our, you know, online stats are or anything like that. Um, how many clicks or profile views we get, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's the way that Langle treats particularly these young characters as full mm-hmm. human beings. Mm-hmm. It's just an approach to writing about children. I mean, this is a mm-hmm. book that is not for I mean it's for children but it's I mean I think it's for any reader Mm -hmm. Um, but she's writing about children so consciously in that she's treating them as you know these full human Mm -hmm. beings who need to be treated in the same way that Meg is treated to know that they are uh, worthy of being loved that their faults are an integral part of who they are that they deserve Mm -hmm. care and that they deserve honesty yeah and that their feelings their strong feelings no matter what they are um, matter. They're not just childish yeah. feelings. And I love yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Well, gosh, Elena, we're tumbling towards the end of Wrinkle in Time. Oh my gosh. What do you think? Do you think she's <laughs> going to make it? Do you think there's <laughs> going to be a good ending? <laughs> I think it's pretty safe to say there will be a very good ending to the book. Yes. But I think that Aunt Beast will have been more than just a pit stop. I think that there is something essential here that she will have learned. Um, and yeah. Yes, I I think, you know, we think a lot about in this book about how, you know, Meg's anger and her faults, which she's so hard on herself and so self-critical for, are so important to helping her triumph. Mm -hmm. But I think this, I mean, detour of sorts with Aunt Beast is a moment in which Aunt Beast and Langle through Aunt Beast is able to show such care Mm -hmm. towards her central character and to show Meg that, you know, yes her faults allow her to triumph but also her faults make her no less worthy of love than any Mm. other character that she deserves this particular attention and care that aunt beast can give to her um and i think part of that is actually the way that lingle allows children in the book Mm. to be treated as adults by people other than their parents Mm. Um, other people are able to you know treat meg and calvin uh with the sort of respect that you would treat you know another autonomous human being mm-hmm. and that's you know aunt beast shows a lot of care to meg but she's also being honest with her yes. and she's explaining you know exactly what is going on they're having a real dialogue Me- uh, aunt beast doesn't dismiss meg's you mm-hmm. know questions or thoughts she's she pays a lot of attention to them and i think that's exactly what Lankel is doing throughout her story mm-hmm. she is the aunt beast of this world in that mm-hmm. in the way that she treats her readers and her characters yeah i agree and and i do think the way that I think Aunt Beast even takes seriously Meg's flaws, not in the sense of yeah. oh they're very bad, but she, she takes she takes care with the damage they could do to Meg, and she teaches mm-hmm. she she treats her like a person mm-hmm. who should be spoken to and and related to as yeah. as someone who can choose and shape and mm-hmm. and um, and whose choices matter. Yeah, and absolutely. So, oh. I want Aunt Beast to carry me over the sea to the UK. That would be much more comforting. <laughs> that would be so delightful. I would like one of the robes that Aunt Beast offers Meg. I would like to simply live in it, and I would like to eat the soup. 
that yes. can't be seeds make. That's what I want. <laughs> yes, and I would like the fragrant flowers that they have on the planet as well. And yes. yeah, it would be deeply, deeply comforting. Well, this has been so much fun. Um, so thank fun. you. I've been so looking forward to this. I'm so glad we got to chat about uh, one of my very favorite chapters. Yes, I'm so glad we did too. And I'm glad that I um, that I managed to gently harass you into reading Wrinkle in Time. Oh, I'm eternally grateful. <laughs> well, thank you everybody for listening and make sure to leave your comments and thoughts um, on the Instagram and Facebook page. And I can't wait till next week. I'm very, I'm both excited and sad to be finishing and we will have Madeline's granddaughter to help us finish off the series. So look forward to that. And because I certainly do. Thank you guys for listening.